From the Mass General Center for the Environment and Health, this is Healthcare SOS. This podcast series is devoted to addressing healthcare sustainability. The U.S. healthcare system contributes substantially to the nation's greenhouse gas emissions. The goal of Healthcare SOS is to share with you how Mass General Hospital is integrating environmental sustainability into its clinical, research, and educational activities. We hope that this will help you do the same or better at your healthcare institution. Welcome to Healthcare SOS, sharing on sustainability. I'm your host, Dr. Winnie Armand. In today's episode, we will be talking about how to do a waste audit. The U.S. healthcare system creates a large amount of waste, especially due to the heavy use of single-use products, much of it plastic. A waste audit is performed to quantify and characterize the amount of waste produced in a particular setting. The information collected can be used to identify areas for improvement in hospital waste reduction. Our guests today have led 24-hour waste audits, where all the waste generated was collected and sorted into categories one audit in the emergency department, and one on a 20-bed inpatient unit. This 20-bed inpatient unit generated in 24 hours 164 kilograms of waste. More than half of the solid waste was made of plastic and mostly from personal protective equipment, PPE. We will be speaking to Dr. John Eisen and Dr. Christian Maywalt, both academic hospitalists at MGH. Ms. LaToya Brewster, the Director of Environmental Services at MGH, and Dr. Jonathan Slutzman, the Medical Director at the MGH Center for the Environment and Health. Visit our website at massgeneral.org slash healthcaresos for their full bios. You can also find on our website the links to the article related to today's episode, as well as to the recording of the Grand Rounds describing more details about the findings of the NGH inpatient waste audit. Christian, Dr. Maywalt, could you tell us about, first and foremost, what happened to get approval for this? What did you guys have to do to make this happen? Sure. Um, it was a months-long process, and uh, John uh, was instrumental, I think, in coordinating multiple different team members but it involved uh, getting together um, the environmental services, the uh, leadership for the unit, the inpatient medicine unit that we um, did the waste audit on. It involved getting um, nutrition services to, to help us um, uh, coordinate some of the, the uh, uh, leftover um, food materials and, um, and uh, putting all these people together, we were able to identify a space on the unit where we could collect all of the uh, waste generated in the 24 hour period. Um, and uh, and then came up with a system with uh, Dr. Eisen's overview um, about how we would dispose of it after sorting through it. So it's sort of this um, true um, multiple department sort of, uh, sort of approach. Okay. So what I'm hearing is that you basically had to involve all disciplines on this inpatient unit to get buy-in, um, and help make this a smooth process. I'm curious, um, Dr. Eisen, why did you guys pick Phillips 21? This is a 20 inpatient bed, um, unit at mass general. And I'm wondering if there was a particular 
feature about this unit that made it more palatable for this kind of project? Yeah, I, I think initially when we were sort of in the early stages of planning and thinking about potential outcomes of this audit, we were looking at um, Phillips 21 because it is um, single, ocu- single occupancy rooms. And we initially thought, you know, we identified that, you know, every single patient gets these single use plastic toiletries for when they're admitted. So we thought that was, you know, some good low hanging fruit, you know, potentially we'd find a lot of that and we could make an intervention like transitioning to wall dispensers. And that would be an easy thing to do in a single occupancy room floor. Um, that wasn't a huge outcome that we noticed. Um, you know, we found a lot more in terms of like PPE, but I, I think it's just, a, it's a very um, uh, sort of like easily regulated floor in terms of sort of number of patients. Um, and I think it's really easy to sort of be able to then extrapolate waste per room or per patient on a floor like that. Um, but that was sort of our initial rationale. This more can very easily be done sort of on any floor in any setting, but that was sort of the initial impetus behind it. Um, additionally, hospital medicine has um, a, a strong relationship with nursing on, on that floor and the Phillips House in general. That's one of our, our main um, floors. So besides the interdisciplinary approval from, say, the nursing, environmental services. Was there anybody at a higher up level within the system that had to approve this? Yeah, that's a good question as well. I, uh, I, I suppose not really. I think the nice thing about this was that there was, it seemed like there was already a lot of interest and buy-in from multiple different stakeholders. I think the real key um, part in sort of getting things moving forward was just getting those lines of communication open. So for example, Jen Sargent, who's a nursing director on Phillips, uh, Phillips House, has already sort of expressed in, you know, interest in making more sustainable changes. But um, I think it was really helpful over the sort of months of planning to sort of uh, open those, those uh, lines of communication and dialogue and, and really sort of chat more about what we could do. Same thing for, um, you know, with environmental services, with Latoya Brewster. Um, Obviously, Jonathan Slutsman was super helpful in, in connecting us and, and having um, Patrice uh, Nicholas involved as well, too, to help from the nursing side of things was really helpful. But there seemed to be already sort of some higher level um, buy-in um, beyond that and getting the room prepped and then deep cleaned. We really tried to um, minimize interruptions, which could have financial implications um, in terms of waste uh, removal pathways and in terms of clinical care. So it was really just finding that space. And then beyond that, just, uh, the manpower person power to, to actually perform the, the audit. And uh, you alluded to earlier, and maybe Dr. Maywalt, you can speak to this. Um, this was a 20 bed unit. How, how would it differ if it were in another hospital or an ambulatory clinic or the ED? Yeah, I think, um, the the volume of trash is certainly one consideration when you're going into an audit like this um, in the emergency department or in the uh, that the amount of trash produced in in patient care may differ significantly from an ambulatory clinic, and so ensuring that you have a space large enough to hold all of the trash produced is important. I think John and I were both quite surprised at how much trash end up, ended up in this room in a 24 hour period. Um, and I think another interesting, um, uh, perspective that has come up, uh, in the last couple of weeks that John and I have considered 
after talking to a few folks uh, throughout the country who are planning their own waste audits, is the amount of regulated medical waste that um, a team might encounter. So for example, we talked with the team in Idaho who's planning to do an audit in the um, intensive care unit, one in the ED and one in the OR. And one of the members of their team is an emergency physician who um, estimated a much, much larger amount of regulated medical waste that they were likely to encounter than what we found in our audit. And that actually meets well with um, the audit performed by Dr. Slutsman here at MGH um, in our ED, where he found uh, a substantial amount of regulated medical waste of which only about 15% was appropriately disposed of um, in, the, in the red bags. John and I expected to find a lot of plastic toiletries. That was one of the original goals of doing this audit. And um, we found only a very small amount of um, single-use plastic toiletries, but we found an enormous amount of gowns. Um, and so on the fly, we started counting all the gowns, which was not a thing that I'm sure, uh, I don't remember that we had expected to do that. So you're, you're, I'm glad you brought this up. And I'm curious um, specifically what kind of categories the waste was sorted into, you brought up regulate, regulated medical waste as well as the municipal solid waste. And then further, it sounds like maybe you even adjusted what you were counting uh, as, as, the, as the audit was in process. So what, how did you divide up the waste exactly? Yeah, so there were multiple layers of uh, division. So the first division was uh, municipal solid waste, which is general trash versus regulated medical waste. Um, and we reviewed the radical regulated medical waste sort of in a cursory manner to ensure that it was the right kinds of things were in there. Um, and it, it appeared that they were, um, and then within the, and we didn't sort the regulated medical waste any further in the municipal solid waste, we divided into categories based on the primary material of whatever the trash piece was. Um, and so those categories were, uh, plastic waste, um, paper, uh, um, textiles like cloth. Um, we had glass, metal, electronics like telemonitors and um, the uh, like pulse oxes, um, and uh, then like mixed materials of which chucks were a consideration because there are parts that are plastic and there are parts that are textile. And then um, sort of on the fly, the amount of plastic that we encountered was tremendous. And so we tried to further describe what those plastic pieces were um, and counted individually how many gowns, how many gloves, how many uh, N95s, how many surgical masks, uh, how many basins, uh, a number of really fine um, counting uh, to try to better characterize exactly what was going into, um, into the trash can. I'm sure you found a lot of surprises. <laughs> so who actually did the sorting and how did you keep them safe um, from say a sharp that was disposed of incorrectly? Yeah, uh, so uh, for most of the the audits, it was uh, just Christian and myself. Um, one of our hospital medicine colleagues, Jeff uh, Lau, um, actually came sort of at the 11th hour and helped us sort through what was a mountain of um, latex gloves. Um, but for the most part, it was just Christian and myself. We wore um, full PPE. We had protective gowns, um, booties for our feet, gloves, uh, masks, uh, goggles, or face shields uh, while we were sorting through all of the waste. Um, 
similar to what was done during the um, MGH emergency room audit a couple of years ago, we did not go through sharp spins out of safety concerns. Um, there wasn't a ton of regulated medical waste that we encountered. So we actually, we, you know, we, as Christian mentioned, we took more of a cursory look to make sure that things were disposed of appropriately in there, but we didn't go sorting through that. Dr. Maywalt, did you sleep? This is 24 hours. How did you manage that? We did it as two shifts. Um, we started counting as the, so the audit started around what, John, 3 p.m. or so. And um, we counted waste uh, until maybe 10 or 11 that night, um, went home and then uh, came back the next morning uh, and started counting again. So the, the nice thing about the way that the waste actually came into the room is that it comes in these um, sort of dedicated shifts uh, when um, rather than a continuous stream. And so we had gotten through a substantial amount of the waste uh, the first night, and then a new wave of trash came in in the morning. So we definitely were able to sleep. What do you think was successful? Uh, what do you think didn't go as well and you would recommend doing differently to our listeners? Yeah, I think um, starting with areas for improvement, again, I think making sure you have a large enough space, enough sort of person power to help through it and, and making sure you have a really sort of clear way of pivoting should you need to if, if things are, if you're encountering different outcomes than you initially thought. I think that's the, the biggest thing. I think, you know, in the moment when Christian and I were doing this, it was certainly overwhelming with the amount of waste that was piling up. And we, I think we were just surprised by the, the volume um, that we ended up having. And, and so having just mainly two people sort through this in a limited space, I think was uh, at times somewhat stressful. Like we felt like we were working against the clock. Um, that may have been somewhat compounded by the fact that there were you know, ongoing patient capacity issues in the hospital. And sometimes that space had doubled as sort of a temporary auxiliary um, patient room. So we were definitely battling the clock to a degree. Um, but I think in terms of success, I think, you know, we were able to do this um, fairly uninhibited and with really no um, impact on overall waste disposal pathways and no impact on patient care, clinical care. So this was sort of happening simultaneously while everything was sort of running naturally on uh, on Phillips 21. And I think the success is just being able to have sort of quantity, you know, quantification of this data um, that I hope will have um, significant implications. I think the real success moving forward is going to see if this data informs potential interventions for improving our, our sustainability practices in the inpatient setting and beyond. But in terms of achieving what we were hoping to achieve, I, I'm, I think, um, we were able to capture a lot of really compelling data in a short amount of time. Thank you, Dr. Maywald. Yeah, I completely agree with John. I think one strength of the audit is that it occurred after the um, COVID like had really taken hold. And so we were better able, able to capture the amount of PPE that is now um, disposed of in the daily care of inpatient um, medicine patients. And so I think that's a, a real strength. All audits performed uh, that we are aware of um, prior to this um, really were not after COVID had started. And uh, I think one area that would be interesting is we, we didn't get any of the cafeteria food 
um, that is brought to the patients each day that's disposed of separately by the nutrition services. And we're really fortunate at MGH that much of the food that is um, provided by the cafeteria services ends up being composted. Um, but I think it would be interesting to see uh, how much food that actually ends up being and um, and following the pathway through to ensure that it actually does end up where it's supposed to in this composting pathway. And I think for other centers that may not have composting as a feature of their organic food waste, um, it would be, that's an opportunity to, to add to the audit um, to see exactly how much waste is produced and perhaps um, strengthen an argument for figuring out a composting pathway in their own hospital. I, I am so grateful for both of you in sharing with us this whole process of, of how you did the inpatient waste audit. Thank you so much for having us. Um, and um, it's really been an honor to, to share our work and, and um, I really hope that it does lead to some, some lasting change across MGH and, and beyond. Um, if anyone is interested in learning more or, uh, you know, trying to, you know, reproduce an audit in, in another setting, whether at MGH or otherwise, you know, Christian and I are available, um, you know, to, to contact and to share our thoughts and sort of brainstorm. I think the beauty of this is that this, the, the issues that we're facing are not just, um, specific to one region or one hospital. This is sort of a global, um, issue. And I think having sort of this network of, uh, clinicians and, and, um, advocates across multiple settings is really just, it's really beautiful to watch. And, um, the collaboration is really, really unique. I wholeheartedly agree. Thank you both again. And I, I look forward to working more with you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ms. Brewster, for joining us. I'm really grateful for your time here. I was wondering if you could tell us, Ms. Brewster, about your team. I'm curious how many people work in the environmental services department at Mass General? Sure. Um, we are part of support services. So we have uh, just over 500 employees um, that work uh, throughout our department. We clean um, 4.5 million square feet across 61 buildings. So we're here at main campus, um, but also in all of our uh, community health centers, Chelsea Everett Revere, um, Back Bay Charlestown, the Charlestown Navy Yard, as well as MGH Waltham and MGH Danvers. That's an incredibly huge amount of staff and square footage. <laughs> it's a lot to handle. <laughs> so I know that your team was incredibly important in the inpatient waste audit, and I'm hoping you can walk our audience through what you had to do in the pre-planning phase before the actual day of the audit. Sure. So um, for EVS, it was really important for us to understand where the audit wanted to take place and then work with the teams in terms of the movement of the waste. So for example, um, in the ED, um, we have a set team that, that's staffed in the ED and we're able to we handle all of that um, waste directly. So that was an easier setup for us in terms of um, identifying a room location, working with D&G to get the room uh, prepped, meaning um, we, we covered everything um, to allow for sorting, um, supplying empty dumpsters um, for the physicians that would be doing the, the sorting, um, and then making sure that we were on site to remove all of the waste and clean, terminally clean the space 
um, to allow resume normal use. Um, in some of our areas, such as the medical waste audit, um, we are not the team that does the in-between case cleaning or collects um, the, the waste from patient rooms. So it was working with um, the, the team that does do the in-between cleaning and the staff on the unit to identify the um, drop-off point of location. Also, again, working with buildings and grounds um, to prep the room um, and our team terminally cleaning the room and removing all of the waste. So how long did you guys have to spend prepping the room in the Phillips inpatient waste audit where the, the waste was going to be collected? Um, so Phillips was a little different because um, of the nature of that space. There's a lot of an antique furniture. Um, there's a clock specifically in there that's very old. Um, so just making sure that all of the furniture um, was moved um, so I would say a couple of hours was spent um, just prepping the room in terms of moving the furniture, wrapping the furniture that could not be moved, um, and then covering the walls, walls and floors. Um, uh, the providing of the dumpsters um, and the actual containers for the waste audit was the, the simpler part of the process um, because each unit has a um, trash holding room. I see. So I've seen pictures, as I recall, you actually put tape out on the floors that had plastic over them for the different waste, um, different types of waste to, to be collected. Is that right? Correct. So everything was was um, covered um, in plastic and, and taped down first, the actual room, um, but then the actual waste containers, um, uh, red bins versus uh, dumpsters, um, everything was was separated. We just diverted um, the drop-off location um, for that 24-hour period, and then my team came up and collected everything at the conclusion and terminally cleaned that room. Okay. And what was the process of breakdown and recollecting things like at the end? How much extra time do you think that added to your team's work? Um, I would say we had a team of three people go up there, and it was about um, two hours. Um, it typically takes 45 minutes for a terminal clean. Um, for us, and that's, you know, um, top to bottom. So we start um, at the ceilings, um, then we hit the walls, and then we do the floors last. Um, but the the interesting part about um, the waste audit is that, you know, when you're taping up everything um, and you're prepping the room and then removing the prep, you want to make sure that you're not doing any um, damage to the existing uh, facilities because, you know, we don't want to have to have and G need to come back and paint or, you know, re restore something that um, got damaged. Um, this room would is normally used for um, patients um, on the floor um, just to get out of their room and, and have a break. So um, it was important that we, we um, broke down the room uh, quickly and it was put back Ms. Brewster, I'm curious, how did the team respond in your department that had to do these extra tasks to these demands? Um, I think everyone responded really well. Um, I'm fortunate to have a team that, you know, we have open communication and, and, and feedback. Um, they were interested to understand why we were doing the waste audit and, um, you know, which we explained. We had a team, team huddle, uh, not just with my operations managers, but with our actual project team. Um, who would be doing the the uh, prepping and breakdown of the room, and it was just important that every to me that everyone on my team understood that 
the reason why we wanted to participate in the waste audit is because we, this would be very uh, useful information for us, um, especially since we autoclave um, our own regulated medical waste. Um, and we were looking to understand where, what categories our waste actually fell into. So um, my team really understood that this was a learning exercise um, and that no one was going to be pe penalized. Oh, that is important. That, I'm glad you stressed that. I'm turning to our guest, Dr. Jonathan Slutsman, the director of the MGH Center for the Environment and Health and the medical director for environmental sustainability at MGH. We actually interviewed Jonathan, Dr. Slutsman, on our first episode titled Creating a Sustainability Team. Dr. Slutsman, among his many hats, is also an emergency physician, and he's joining us today to talk about the 24-hour waste audit that he did with his team in the emergency department. So one of these little details that came up when we were talking with our earlier physicians about the inpatient waste audit was the scale, which I believe they borrowed from you, Dr. Slutsman, not any ordinary scale. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Yeah, this actually, uh, the same thing came up when we did the ED waste audit. We actually didn't have an adequate industrial scale that would give us the measurements we needed at the accuracy and precision that would be worthwhile. Um, so actually for the ED audit, um, my student Sarah Sue uh, was able with some research funding to purchase an industrial bench scale to weigh the waste. And it was one that was recommended to us by um, one of my mentors and advisors, Dr. Cassie Thiel at NYU. Um, so we had that that scale for that waste audit, but but Sarah has that with her. So we were we were talking about doing this inpatient waste audit, and since then I have purchased with some research funding some bench scales for doing my own environmental assessment work, uh, particularly life cycle assessment, where we have to take things apart and weigh them, and some things are really tiny and some things are a little bit bigger. Uh, so. Uh, Doctors Eisen and Mewalt uh, came to me and said, "All right, we're we're ready to do this audit, but but we don't have a scale that'll work." And I said, "Well, no problem. You can you can borrow one of my scales, but the key is that um, that you want to measure at a at a at a precision that makes sense for the for the amount of waste that you're generating. And in some cases, when you're talking about a one day waste audit, if you're if you're doing anything more than just weighing a whole bag together if you're if you're taking it apart and you're saying okay how much do these gloves weigh and how much does uh does does this plastic tubing weigh um you really need to get down to at the very least a gram level if not half a gram or smaller um so uh so most you know your your bathroom scale at home is not going to do this job uh and unfortunately some of these high precision scales can can be fairly expensive. So um, I was, of course, more than happy to share the scale with uh, with doctors Mewalt and Eisen for their audit. I supremely support it. But, um, but I think that if you want to do an audit at your own facility, certainly one of the questions you're going to have to answer is, what am I actually going to use to weigh this stuff? So can you give us an idea of like, the cost, the size, where do you store it? I mean, these are silly logistical things, but things that our listeners probably are wondering. 
Yeah, so there are a few different types that you can use. Um, the and it and it depends again on on the size of the stuff you're weighing. For the ED waste audit, we used uh, I believe it was an Edland ERS sixty maybe, um, which is a um, it's got a platform that goes on the floor. It's maybe about two feet by two feet square, something like that. Uh, and then it's got a display that that connects to it by a wire so that you can have the display up on on a table or or we put it on a windowsill so that we could see it at eye at eye level while we put stuff on the platform that was on the floor. Um, for the inpatient audit, the scales that I have are bench scales. So so it's all one piece with a platform and the platform is about I think you know maybe 20 inches by 15 inches and I apologize to my metric friends who are listening to this, you'll have to do the conversion yourself, two and a half in centimeters per inch, you can figure it out. Um, but uh, that one has to be either on the floor or on a table and you have to read it on the unit itself. Um, the capacity of the scale that, I, that, that was used for the inpatient audit, um, I believe it's a 30 kilogram scale uh, and it measures down to a uh, hundred milligrams, so 0 0.1 gram, um, with an accuracy. So the precision is 0 0.1 grams. The accuracy is 0 0.5 grams, which is certainly adequate for uh, the kind of waste audit that we were doing, and, and most waste audits would be fine. Um, so the, the cost of these scales, um, you're generally talking on the order of hundreds of dollars. Um, anywhere from, let's say, $200 to maybe $600, um, depending on the specific scale you want to get. Obviously, the more you spend, the greater the precision and accuracy could be or the size. Um, and so you, you want to balance kind of where you're spending your research and, and administrative funds. Um, but uh, that's kind of what you can get. And Anything less than that, you're you're really compromising, I think, on the quality of the measurements. Um, what was striking to me was the difference in the regulated medical waste. So uh, in the inpatient side, the RMW, uh, regulated, regulated medical waste, was a little bit less, but pr pretty accurately disposed of. But what was striking to me in the ED waste audit was that um, about 11% of the waste was RMW and about 85% of that thrown into there was not actually medical waste. Uh, I would love if you could tell our listeners a little bit about the difference of the, those waste products and why it matters and what the different uh, footprint is of RMW versus uh, regular waste. Yeah, so RMW is just the fancy regulatory term for the red bags. Um, so you can have that in your mind that that when we talk about regulated medical waste or RMW or red bag, it's all the same stuff. Um, and the reason that it's so important is is kind of twofold. Um, one is it costs financially a lot more to dispose of regulated medical waste, of red bag waste. Um, on average, across the United States, it's about 10 times more expensive to get rid of red bag waste as non-red bag waste. Um, at our institution, we actually manage it uh, on site, which gives us some good economy of scale and, and savings. So for us, it's around four to five times more expensive to dispose of red bag waste compared to, to standard, what we call municipal solid waste or MSW. Um, but that's still quite a bit more expensive. And then the, the 
The flip side of that is that the environmental impacts are immensely larger. So red bag waste or regulated medical waste has to be rendered safe from an infection perspective. And uh, basically the two ways to do that are incinerating it or autoclaving it. Um, and uh, the, the evidence, the, the, the studies that I've seen on this say that still in the United States, the majority of red bag waste is managed by incineration, uh, which generates quite a bit in the way of air pollution, um, certainly climate changing greenhouse gases, but also uh, criteria air pollutants that cause ill health. Um, but uh, autoclaving also carries with it some environmental impacts. Uh, the energy required for the high pressure steam needs to come from somewhere uh, and that generates emissions too. Um, so we have to treat it pretty intensively. We cause a whole lot of pollution from it. So it certainly behooves us to put the things in the red bags that need to go in the red bags to protect the public from potential biohazardous waste. Um, but we shouldn't put things in the red bag that don't need to go in the red bag. Uh, so it's a challenge. It's one that we're actually in the process of investigating in the emergency department, how we can improve our red bag waste contamination rate. Um, nationally, the target is about 10%. Um, so our 85% rate is really quite above the target. I think this is an excellent example of why, of how doing an audit offers insight and uh, allows us to know how to target staff education and operational changes by um, evaluating these outcomes. So it was a really interesting paper. Thank you, Dr. Slutsman. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Armand. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healthcare SOS. You can learn more about Healthcare SOS and today's guest at massgeneral.org slash healthcare SOS. Find more episodes on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like this episode, please subscribe, rate us, and share with your friends and colleagues. Healthcare SOS is a production of Massachusetts General Hospital's Center for the Environment and Health in Boston, Massachusetts. Healthcare SOS was conceived by your host, Winnie Armand, Music beats are courtesy of Olivier Armand.